0: How, Commiserating how, with Tuesday. Why are you doing it? This, this is the thing why that I want to know. That you are, why do I do this? I
1: should say, by the way, this is a uh, not a shambly book shambles. Uh, it's kind of a book shambles extra. Josie Long is going through roughly the same uh, stress as you, uh, trying to work out what the Hell Her Solo show is about in Soho Theatre, uh, which opens, which I think starts the same night as you, in fact. Oh, so she. You give me your
0: number and I'll give her a ring and we can give each other a little kind of. Mobile squeeze.
1: Yeah, you can, you you can collide over yeah. Tower Bridge as Send you as you travel across exactly. the Thames. Um, <sighs> why you, why why are you doing Beckett again? That's the uh, because you did. When did you stop doing? Not I. Rock footfalls was
0: you did it again in New York. Didn't you? Did you? I did. I'm a nutter, to, I'm a nutter. because I'm a nut. I'm mad, properly mad. Now's the time when I'm going. What in God's name am I doing? I'm mad. Help.
1: But is it because, this is something we were talking about the other day, which is that when you start imagining, because my favourite bit of shows, when I'm coming up with new ones, is I love the process yeah. of imagining you all the it, different things idea, that are going to happen. I'll
0: hang this way, and then we'll do this, and then, you know what, fake it. Let's do it in the old Vic. You know, let's just put the bog of Ireland in the old Vic, and everybody will come, and it'll be... Uh, It's Thursday. What am I doing? Can somebody call somebody?
1: Do you know what you need to be? You need to be a physicist. Because when I did the uh, tour with Brian Copps in the summer, and literally we we spent some time in Singapore working out. He he kind of had all his stuff that he was going to do. We'd have little chats about it. And so the first night, with no work in progress, three thousand six hundred in Melbourne, I said, "You know what, Brian? A lot of kind of actors and comedians, we do a little run up, maybe a little, just a little rehearsal night or something. So We'd yeah. go, this will be fine. I've got the graphs. There's a lovely kabuki drop at the beginning.' And, <laughs> and, that, and that was it. Um, so that's what we need. We, we need the physicist approach uh, yeah. as opposed and to." And I
0: don't even like I hear people in the West End, particularly a new show. You know, I was talking to Nika Burns about the whole Harry Potter. Look, I know that's a different scale, but they had, like, six weeks of previews. I have two before the press come in and annihilate me and end my career. But you've done a little (laughs) bit. We should say what it is.
1: This is taking... um, It's 13 short stories in text for nothing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Have your water. (laughs) it's fine. There we are, and that's uh, that. one was brought to <laughs> you by Highland Spring. I'm about uh, to burp shortly. We can. We, that's why we we need. It's all, there. It just layers the podcast, yeah. and also you're doing Beckett, and there's. Uh, I know. See, I haven't it's seen you yet. Do uh, that. That there it though, That's early Beckett. There's another isn't one.
0: It? There's another burp.
1: Scratching the private. Later. <laughs> farting, burping. Yes, I was, it
0: is early Beckett. You're right, actually. That kind of jovial. <laughs> Jocular, slightly adolescent, boyish rudeness uh, that he's kind of taken over from Joyce, and it's a modernist thing too. Um, I think it's it's a young writer, and he was desperately young, you know, when writing Godot and um, Echo's Bones, and you know, he's a man in his late twenties, early thirties, and um, and I think there is a, a, a you know a boyishness there. But what I find really exciting is when you pick up these stories, just to place them in context, they're written in the early 50s, 1950, So are all of
1: these, because I know that with Beckett, sometimes you discover that for various different reasons, sometimes contractual or whatever, he he would go, oh, I can't work this story out, so I'm going to dig back and give them this instead.
0: No, well...
1: So these are all post...
0: I'll tell you what happened is he wrote the trilogy and was working on them during the war. And the trilogy, the very famous trilogy of novels, um, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable. And when I read The Unnameable, you really see that it is the first blueprint for Not I, which was basically the dynamite that created a trajectory that Becca was working towards from then on. And you really see the roots of when Beckett moved away from the standard uh, Joycean modernist route, you know, the boyishness, all of that. It, it, when you read Echoes Bones, one of the, the first novels that was just recently published, it's very hard to tell the difference between Joyce and Beckett. I feel, and maybe it's too big of a an statement and I can hear academics recoil, but I, could fi- I feel that, you know, Beckett could outright Joyce. Like All of those tendrils, all of that knowledge, that deep knowledge, the classical knowledge, all the kind of rudiments of modernism, he had. But then he started writing for the crone. Then he started following the part of art as reduction. So does it hold up if I write this in French? Is it still real and true if I take away most of the language? what if I take away the individual? What if I take away the sex, the identity? What if I take away the noun? What if I, you know, does, does the wound still hold up? And that was a very exciting thing for Beckett. And when he finished the unnameable, he couldn't finish. He had hit on this kind of creative well that was just gushing out of him. And these... 13 short stories he referred to as the afterbirth of the unnameable. And the whole notion of... Sorry. The whole notion, as I eat the mic... Just so people know that
1: the the, uh, volume may well... Widely vary on this because, because I'm getting, flapping every time you suddenly went. get it really close like that and then far yeah. away, that is again that's that's the kind of the wavelengths of different levels of tension and passion in yeah. someone who's opening in two days.
0: He <laughs> was completely manic, um, but where was I?
1: Was saying about the uh, the Joyce that you believe you could outright Joyce, and then he gets to that point where he removes oh, the set, and he some. refers
0: to just. To, to talk about, like, let's say, if the unnameable, the end of those, that, that trilogy, was this gushing well and the 13 short stories that followed he referred to as the afterbirth. The afterbirth is a very interesting motif in Beckett. Beckett was obsessed with these creatures not quite born. In the membrane, the very thin membrane that he grabs our faces and pushes us against the membrane of the here and the not there. That very thin line between death and living. Those of the dead, those of the living, and those of those who are not born. And that whole notion of the the unborn, of not ever fully being, is something that haunted Beckett right till the end. Right to his last vestiges, the ill-seen, ill-said, not I, and I suppose for me, this was tremendously exciting when I came across these writings because I met Beckett late in life. I met a refined, pared-back artist and it was desperately exciting for me to go back and see him fleshing out these notions that I I know I've been travelling with them around the world and performing them for 12, 15 years, and to go back and see them in their fleshier, adolescent role or form was gorgeous for me and somewhat comforting because it it made sense to a lot of the voices I later found. And just the other day, I saw some of his notes to Billy Whitelaw, um, both in Happy Days and also in Not I, where he's encouraging certain voices that I just gravitated towards instinctively. I say instinctively, but actually, what I do with Beckett is I try and find the music first. Beckett writes a kind of music, a music of the soul. And he was more persuaded by that. And this started happening in these 13 short stories. The real rhythms start coming out the speech rhythms, the music, the tempo. And he, he, he really worked on that trajectory to the point where he was so convinced that if an actor fully connects to this kind of music and plays this kind of score, the words are immaterial. And that's why he wanted, not I, spoken at the speed of thought, that that tempo would, you know, puncture and go through the intellect and play on the nerves of the audience. And it's a kind of communication that became gut-to-gut or as Billy Whitelaw called the touching centers. Um, I, I, I wouldn't go that grandiose, but I do believe that there's a kind of communication that happens between all of us that's very uh, sensual and, and on a completely other level than what has been spoken. And Beckett has convinced me of this and has kind of taught me that truth has a kind of sound, a timbre, independent of the words that, are being said and he creates that in lots of different ways some of it is uh, he was a, an amazing you spoke about you know physicist beckett was an amazing mathematician and he would try and create a kind of balance in the score i could show you now the first draft of footfalls and his notebooks i have a photograph of it that actually look like a stave of music i don't know if i've shown you this you ever we'll, we'll before but it's a bit hard record. to put it on radio no, we can um, put it up on the website, Well, we? we'll it's have to so get permissions get first. Permission. Oh, oh, that's the problem. So so but you can j- describe, just this is the first draft of Yeah, the it foot does, holes.
1: it looks exactly like someone...
0: A stave of music. Of music.
1: Yeah.
0: And I, I am an ex-dancer, and I'm dyslexic, and I find the page very unreliable, and I love to commit poems to, to, to memory, Um, And I love to gather the text as quickly as possible into my mind, and then it can create a kind of musical score. And I memorize text in a very musical way. Um, And so for me, it was coming to terms and trying to find the meaning and the voices and the emphasis and the pace and the truth on a musical level first. So my process with all of this was blindfolding myself, donning the old blindfold from not I, getting rid of ideas of the body, of sex. Remember, these pieces were, A, never meant to be performed, but B, weren't written with a woman in mind. Beckett put the mind on stage, he put his own mind on stage, he put the subconscious on stage, he put consciousness on stage. Um, Anybody can access that is my argument, I feel it. And truth is truth, it isn't, you know, gender-specific. And the human condition isn't gender-specific. And I feel a, a, a deep, visceral, raw, rich connection to this that feels more honest than any other piece of literature or writing or artistic notion I've ever encountered.
1: What are the problems, though, with the audience in terms of with Beckett as the reputation and their expectations of what they think? I mean, we talked about in the last podcast when I saw you in Toronto, and there were certainly members of that audience who didn't have much of an idea of what they were coming to see. They'd seen the five star reviews, and they were expecting more kind of rotor blades and disco lighting, I think, than not iron footfalls. Give though, footfalls on rotor blades is a very—I'm not sure the Beckett estate would allow that. Well, you know, it depends
0: what you come to theatre to for. Well, I just
1: wonder because sometimes in in terms of the humour, even when you see something like you know the most famous works, when you see Endgame or Waiting for Godot, you can see that some people, because he is elevated to the status that he is, that they go. It sometimes takes half an hour, even at the end of the first half of Godot. There's a certain point. I I think actually normally it's let's hang ourselves. At that point, people go, (laughs) "Am I allowed to?" And so, and in a different way, whether it's humour or not, that bit of, we must now try and experience this as high art. So when you go in front of that audience, there are some people who their expectations of how they feel they should react to this may well stymie the reality of their reaction.
0: Well, I think, De- think Becker takes care of a lot of that from beyond the grave. He parodied an over of his work. That's not to say that the riches aren't there. They are. And the gorgeous discovery in working with Beckett, you might have the slightest little notion that this might sound like it might be from somewhere else, but sufficient unto the day. I mean, it's from the gospel. So every phrase has a root, deep in Dante, or the gospel, or physics, or maths, or theory, or, I you know. I
1: was just annoyed today to find out that, yes, but look at the world and look at these trousers, isn't a Beckett original. I had always thought that Beckett had come up with a brilliant joke for Endgame. And if you've <laughs> never seen it, have a look. The, there are very many versions that you can see online, the Michael Gambon, uh, David, and, and that is one of my favourite scenes yeah. in any of his plays. Beautiful, partly because, I suppose, as a comedian, watching Someone constantly going, like, "Let's tell that joke that we always liked and mm. getting it wrong, feeling that I'm yeah. feel well enough." But it's a great joke, and then I found out just an old joke. Yeah, and I thought so. Dante, but, but, the Bible, and some very good old jokes <laughs> from the pub <pulpit laughs> as well. You know, they're there.
0: cricket references, and you know, to make. But I, what I love about this is that he parodies himself. He's not only tearing apart an intellectual take of his work, he's also taking himself apart to such an extent and with such ferociousness and bravery and relentlessness. You see the pain of uh, an integral mind or a mind searching for meaning or integrity and examining itself and not being prepared to be satisfied with titbits or its own creations or allowing itself luxuriate in vanity or its previous creations. You see him tearing apart Godot in this, you know? And, and I love him for that, you know, because I don't know about you and your mind, but my mind doesn't give me a second's respite. You know, I'm, I'm always self-critical. I mean, there's not a thing a critic could write that I haven't beaten myself up with a million times over.
1: But when the critic does write that because everyone says there that, that we're not ever, I mean I agree we've talked about this in 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 the past about that bit where the constant inner monologue it's not a monologue anyway There's various Oh well, it's a cacophony it's no least little stream of, of on consciousness and some yeah, of them are yeah. real some of them are Tom Paulin yeah. from the late 90s really? and some of them are uh, you know the, the, your own kind of almost HP Lovecraft uh, beasts that have yeah. come to critique you on some bizarre yeah. BBC2 Cthulhu review show um and but that when it's then on paper or when you hear someone in the audience and you do, you know that bit that you might hear a murmur and the murmur might just be oh no i've dropped my thing or whatever it might be but you don't hear that now how much does that change you you've armed yourself in one way with this constant perpetual self criticism mm. but if it appears on the page from someone else is it in some ways a relief? Oh, they've seen through me. Well, look,
0: I know this sounds really arrogant, but I haven't had a bad review. Uh, Like, I mean, I think somebody wrote something terrible in the Daily Mail, but nothing I'd ever really, that would hit me. Do you know what I mean? That's obviously Quentin Letts isn't going to affect me in any way. and oh, never we didn't will. really liked
1: Groundhog Day that much either, which was, of course, the previous uh, celebration. I don't know why uh, he goes so. to the
0: theatre, but, you know, look, it's fine. Do and, know we've and talked, you know what? We took
1: anticipation, which we've talked <laughs> about on this before, it. and it is my favourite word. I love and I that can't word. remember. which uh, It was uh, a Doctor Who convention. Yeah. I met some people who I yeah. know who work in Doctor Who, and they said the problem with the adult Doctor Who fans is anticipation. Every Saturday night, they go, Brilliant Doctor Who's on, Brilliant Doctor Who's on. And I'll tell you what, I bet get some things wrong about the side but I hope I enjoy it I don't really <laughs> they've got all those things wrong and haven't understood actually the basic narrative or history of the Sidemen <laughs> let's go online and say how disappointed we were well I wish he glee. did it
0: better if that was the case because I love criticism and anyone who's in this Kind of collective with me, and have an amazing team laugh at me because they're like, just accept what we've said. No, no, but there has to be something. We can't be satisfied. It has to be because, and that I beat myself. I want to go home with a a, a list of things to improve on, and that's I, I drive them mad here. And they just, you know, they just <laughs> Lisa it's good, or this part is, you can accept this, this works, or, you know, and I just won't, it has, I need to attack everything and hold it up to the light and, you know, constantly refine and make better and there isn't enough time and all of that stuff, it's not a joy being in my head. So I actively seek criticism, but when I read his criticism, it can't, I don't know, it just is so, it's so innocuous so predictable so lacking in any kind of real knives like if you're gonna go for it go for it be violent and brutal and intelligent and really attack something not his way do you know yeah, what i but mean he can't
1: really do that because in one way he's probably as he's writing it also on a tricycle dressed as benjamin disraeli doing one of his uh, inserts for andrew neil's late night political show on a thursday
0: do you know what? I don't even know what he looks like. Oh, you oh, don't. Tear- if
1: you ever, if you ever accidentally watch Question Time, I feel I'm terrible accident-
0: now tearing into this poor man. No, 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 he's, I, I, no. I don't, I don't uh-
1: think he. I think he's written enough things that have been very happy. He wrote a book called 50 People Who Buggered Up Britain and he's written lots of things, which is a, a rip-off of a... Well, not rip-off, it's kind of... Well, Were it they all socialists? It's an American version of the... It's, 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 it's the normal list you would imagine mm-hmm. of, uh, mm. of of kind of artists yeah. or, or academics artists, or Artists, women whatever. and socialists. So, so I don't think that there's... Uh, yeah. and no one looks forward to seeing him dressed up as Lord Palmerston you know, on a pogo stick doing his amusing take on whatever happened in it's really Yeah. So don't don't but it's also do you sometimes think if I get a glowing review for him, from him, what have I done wrong? You begin to get the expectation that there are certain critics that if they if they love your work, you go, Oh, that's good oh oh
0: dear. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. So look, I I, I also I mean this is the hardest thing. There's no other theatre like this. And what I'm doing is is ballsy and it is not entertainment and if I try and be liked if I really try and entertain the audience Beckett's gonna hang me out to dry so I really have to put my blindfold on communicate this in a very real way like really let the audience in don't try and dress it up don't try and sell it but really put my hand on the wound in the way that he did on my wounds, lend him my nervous system, my past, my history, my scars. Give the audience that. I I can't do anything else. I can only try and make a true sound and make that audible in a thousand-seater. <laughs> um. And, and try, the biggest challenge we've had is creating a kind of visual poetry that goes with that. And it's a very taut discipline because I can't make this some narcissistic actor's therapy either. There is a, a real structure with Beckett. There's a tautness. There's a reason why he liked Hayden. There's a, you know uh, he, And I love all of that because that's the discipline I came from. I went to ballet school. I grew up with that kind of rigor where you would, in that rigorous thin line, pack every single bit of energy and thing you have to say into that. And you just have that moment. And there's a potency in that. So for us to try and create the, the visual poetry and the potency of those images and the pairing back, that's relevant to me, to my selections, to my landscape, is probably the most terrifying thing I've ever ventured on. And I was petrified. And then would the estate allow me? Would, you know, what are the, 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 the Beckett, disciples going to think there's a church of beckett which i think is deeply unhelpful and i have a you know suspicion (laughs) a a, a deep (laughs) founded suspicion that beckett would have hated that a church building up around his work i think that's dangerous dangerous to the work and what i hope to do is open up this work to women open up the idea of a subconscious being that vast to all of us. What Beckett does in terms of exposing our ideas around identity and the possibility of that, that we're so much more than our bodies, than our countries, than our nationalities, than our flags, our politics, our accents, you know, our borders that we erect, Beckett blows all of that out of the water and offers the most enormous landscape that is ancient, that goes back to the kind of the first sound, you know, and through that we carry in ourselves a deep history that we're all entitled to. And he kind of suggests in a pretty mystical way that we're all of one mind. In fact, he says it in this, all of one mind. And that, to me, feels like a very true thing. And I think we need real reminders of that. Not in a polemic way, because if I started to lecture an audience or if he was lecturing any of us, we wouldn't hear it. But if he can suggest in the dark if people can connect with me, if the greatest misogynist in the audience, you know, can see through my body and the boobs and my youth and the blonde thing and the blue, if they can see all of that and see a, a bird or their mother or their father or their eagle or their country or their migrant. And when you think about all the innocuous no's, I don't know about you and... Um, I can only tell you that from the minute I was born, blonde and blue-eyed, the amount of nose I was told. The problem with you, Lisa, the thing about you, Lisa, the thing is, Lisa, you don't sound how you look. Your voice doesn't match your face. The problem, you should do this. No, 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 girls can't, you know, and just to be squeezed into all these various different boxes. Out of sheer terror that I might just stretch out and be. We weren't allowed to be. And when I think now, at this moment, the drowned migrants weren't allowed be. Even in death, they're not allowed be because they have the category of migrant. It's, um, it's something we need to start examining. Facebook can't dictate to me what identity and humanity is anymore. Um, I think theatre is one of the places... One of the last bastions of mystical suggestion in such a cellular, deep, it's a spiritual place, you know. And I don't want to entertain the audience with this. Becca would hang me out to dry if I did that. I'd hang me. Second. <laughs> and the audience and then Quinton would have a complete field day. Um, but, I've fallen but, off my <laughs> tricycle. The, um,
1: <laughs> see, that's the interesting... When, when I saw you in, in uh, Not On Football's Rockerby and, and talking afterwards and saying there's that interesting thing where we have an expectation that everything's meant to be a good time, and what I found interesting with watching that... And, and I would compare it to things like watching the, the Nick Cave film that recently yeah. uh, came out, or even a, a documentary like Finding Vivian Mayer or something like that, where sometimes you don't have a good time to have a good time. If you see what I mean, it's not... You don't have an immediate good time. But, but there's more the experience of that. the The moment that films, the moment that you go into a film, or you go into a play, there are, you know, as you said, there's, there's a, this is a place of entertainment, but some of the most exciting things are things where you leave daunted and confused but they won't leave your head afterwards. And you, we interviewed Alan Moore recently in his very lengthy 1,200-page novel, Jerusalem, and that has a point where the characters, I'd st- started just popping into my dreams and I couldn't get rid of them. And all of those things, which is and they... exactly what he'd want as a shaman.
0: You know what? There's lines of poetry are there's... There are certain motifs or things that come up have made me feel less alone when I go through things that are very human. I got to meet my hero this week. I was a bit starstruck. Patsy Rosenberg, the famous voice coach. I remember living in Galway um, when I was 18 or 19 and that the hope of becoming a professional actress was just a distant and vague impossible dream. And I remember in this great second-hand bookstore Charlie Burns in Galway picking up a copy of this book, An Actor Speaks, and just thinking, Jesus, London, and in my eye, romanticising theatre. And here I am on the stage where Lawrence Olivier stood in the Old Vic doing a one-woman show, and Patsy Rosenberg is doing a, a voice warm-up with me. And there's an amazing clip on YouTube... Um, where she shares why she does theatre. And actually, it goes back to our story about Adelaide. Before the mics were rolling, we were talking about Australia and touring Australia and Adelaide. But she was doing a book tour in, in Adelaide. And there was a man in the audience with his arms crossed, kind of um, looking cynically at her. And she thought in her mind he hates her. And he was kind of apart from everybody else. And she did a book signing afterwards, and he was still hovering. And she thought, I'm going to have to go and talk to him now. And he came up to her afterward, and he said, yeah, I don't like (laughs) theatre. Me and my wife went to the theatre once. She didn't like it. And she she said, oh, oh, what, what didn't you like about it? And she was trying not to be defensive. And he went, well, you know, I went to see this thing. It was uh the women of troy and oh the, you went to see the women of troy <laughs> and he went yeah yeah this child dies and she went yeah it's when and she started describing the, the story and he went yeah 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 it's just that this actress you know she she this woman she just she just made the sound it was really embarrassing you know it was really awful it was really embarrassing and she went oh and he went And stopped suddenly, and he looked down at his feet. And then he said, a year ago, the police came and knocked on my door and told me that my daughter had been raped and murdered, and I made that sound. And Patsy said, that's why I do theatre. So that actor didn't entertain. She was prepared to make an embarrassing role guttural whatever sound it was that was embarrassing to some maybe unpopular maybe she got terrible reviews but by making a true sound it connected with someone at the right time and I think I've been more interested in the last few years in connecting with people who you know, speak their truth. And sometimes they don't speak it very well. Sometimes it chokes in the throat on the way out. And I'm more interested in that sound than a polished polemic, actually. Because it makes me feel less alone. And it makes me feel like I'm connecting to something that we spend most of our life avoiding. Avoiding the fact that we feel cortailed and you know i just did a play recently and i felt sick the entire time and i realized the reason why i felt sick is i was playing a shrill one-note girlfriend and i had to do that for eight weeks and it started to kind of erode my soul um, I can't say that I'll always be doing Beckett. I don't think it's healthy to look at the world from this perspective all the time. I think you need all different shades of colour and take a kaleidoscopic view of the world. You know, this is a very stark <laughs> iris, <laughs> and I don't think it's particularly healthy to keep going. And it's a lot to bear, and it costs us—costs Billy Whitelaw—and it's cost me, as you know.
1: Do you ever think that when you, because you talk about? all of the the voices in the head, all of the criticism in the head, that there is a danger that you could actually suddenly go, do you know what, I'm just going to stop for a while, and I'm going to go somewhere quite solitary, and I'm just going to stay for a while. And then you find that after the first week, where all the adrenaline and the normal expectation of the worries is no longer there, and that therefore your definition of this is who I am, you go... I don't know if I've found happiness, but I might have accidentally found that sometimes you can be contented without work and that that might be more worrying than the constant panic of always creating these things.
0: No, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that because I do feel that... I don't know how I've ended up where I am right now. I really don't know. I'm an odd little thing. And I've, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm landed here by years of expulsion, years of being told you don't fit in here, you can't, you know, this, and and just being constantly expelled and shut out and just not being able to fit in, or trying to fit in and making myself very sick in doing so. Um, I've just day by day, tried to take some sort of authentic step. And now I've kind of ended here. And it could end terribly. You know, I don't know what's around the corner for me. I don't even know if I'm an actor. Like, we talk about categories. I met Jim Sheridan recently, and he said to me, Jesus, Lisa, least the last thing I thought you'd become is a one-woman performance artist. Now, I don't know why I can't be an actress, and also, I, this guy asked me to do an interview on Beckett. Um, you know, sort of, oh, there's so many people mining the man's life or Billy's life or dead. You know, I I wouldn't want to do that for a life, <laughs> mine somebody else's. You know, all that biographical stuff. I'm more interested in what he left us. Um, but I did the interview, and he had the camera at a wrong angle. And I just suggested moving over, and I had very little time. And he went, oh, an actress who directs. The poor man. I mean, the interview that followed was so vicious and hostile. (laughs) I don't think he'll fluff a guest in that way um, in the future. But, you know, as a woman, and particularly a woman at this age and unattached, you're very aware of categories. What am I without a child? What am I without a family? What am I... And, you know, this whole post-Brexit identity crisis. You know, I've got a green card. I'm half living in America. I'm half living here. I don't know where I am. I don't know where's home. I had to leave Ireland because I was a TV actress. I had to move here because now I have (laughs) this homelessness, this sense of identity, this malleable thing. Uh, and now I, I am denied the term actress, which I thought I was striving in. Now I'm an artist, or a self-directing one, or you know. And now I have an opportunity to direct something, you know. And I love it. And I realise that I have ideas. I didn't even I know I had ideas. I didn't even know I had a vision.
1: Howard Zinn, the the great anarchist historian, and uh, who I love, I love Howard Zinn. He died a few years ago, still doing wonderful things in his, in his late eighties. And he said, you know, why is it at parties people say, what do you do? Because whatever you say, that doesn't say anything about you, really. But there are certain jobs where you could say, well, if you're a torturer, then that in some ways does. But overall, (laughs) what do you do? Why why don't we spend more time socialising, saying, what do you think? we better go, because you've got to go and do... See, I wonder, this is my final thing to you then, which is when you, you know, why do I do these things? When you're asking yourself that, and especially when you're thinking about what may be happening in American politics and what is happening in British politics, is it because at least when you're not acting in someone else's play, when you have the power to, in some ways, control it, that at least you're in control of your own destruction? Yeah. Whereas for the other 23 hours of the day, someone else or various people may be in control of your destruction.
0: I think that's a lovely uh, note to leave that on just before I open. I'm in control of my own destruction. Thank you. I think it's very positive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look I on am... my works, you mighty. <laughs>
0: That's not, look, I've, I've loved the whole collaborative process of this, but it's just throwing open these ideas of identity and job descriptions and all of these arbitrary little boxes that we take. I don't know, maybe I might be a doctor, or maybe I'll, I'll go off and write a book. In fact, I'm supposed to be writing a book. Maybe I'll become a writer. Maybe I might want to become a mum in the five minutes I've left to do it. or You know, all of these kind of... I, don't, I have no idea... Um, I'm just each day trying to take a kind of authentic step. That's all I'm trying to do, even if it's only one step and even if I go backwards a few times. That's all I'm trying to do at the moment. And not let others define me because that doesn't make me very well. That's all.
1: Thanks, Lisa. Duane.
0: Thanks a million. You're doing,
1: how many, just quickly, when are you? Yeah. Um, so this is, has uh, just over a two week run at the Old Vic. Are you yeah. then taking it other places? I am, but
0: not immediately. Oh, here's another. where I'm off to teach at Princeton, um, so I'm. I have to go and do that, and I have to write a book. And so when I'm finished that, I'm. This is opening in. In um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but it's going on tour. Right. It's going on right. tour in uh, May 2017. Yeah. Say a prayer. Light a candle. <laughs> do you
1: know what? Find Derek and ask Derek what he thinks you should do. It was Derek, wasn't it? Derek. Derek in the church.
0: Oh, Derek! Derek. Yes! That's what you need
1: to do. Find Derek. Did you
0: record Derek?
1: Oh, do we get Derek? I don't know. Did we? Tragically, yeah. we'll, we'll. Yeah. But one Who's day we'll Derek? tell you about Derek. Yeah. Derek maybe. Derek in St. The, the guy who
0: hangs out in a church in St. Dominic's Priory, and we're not sure if he's a priest or not, but he hears the random confession and offers very interesting, interesting penance. What was your penance
1: <laughs> to your many sins? I
0: listened to Bach's Prelude, my favourite piece of music.
1: So for the sinful listening to this, that's what we suggest for you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, If, uh, In the words of Josie Long, if you are feeling a little bit flush and you would like to support us, then you can do that either via Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode you will get exclusive bonus episodes and every week to one of our Patreon supporters we will be giving away a bag of books as well, including sometimes by authors who've been on and lots of things that we like but don't fit in our house anymore. You can also make a one-off donation of any amount through PayPal and you don't need to have a PayPal account to do that. Also, all episodes, reading lists and donation links are available from Cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. And if you want, you can leave a review on iTunes. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.